The scripture reading for today comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. It's good to be with you. If you're new, welcome uh, to North Cross. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. Um, if you're here again, uh, thanks for coming. Maybe you feel new. Welcome. And uh, we'd love to see you too. We're going to hang out afterwards. Uh, the service uh, will be hanging outside. Great way to get to know people. Great way to, to be known. Uh, we'd encourage you to do that. Also, if you want to reach out, you're welcome to reach out to me in person if you're online. Thanks for joining us too. Uh, you can reach out to me at sit at northcrosschurch.com or if you feel like that's too personal, info at northcrosschurch.com can also work. Uh, you're welcome to, to do that as well. So uh, I'm encouraged to be with you all again and to open up the scriptures with you all. And so um, let's do that together. And we're gonna do that by starting, I'm gonna do that by starting to move the mic so I don't keep hitting it. And then I'm gonna also now move into the uh, sermon series we've been doing this fall, which is in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, and we're calling it Jesus and his church belonging to an ordinary looking miracle. Ephesians is God through Paul laying out a bold vision for his church and for true community. But as our sermon title suggests, God is at work through people like us and churches like North Cross. God is working to make his church look and sound and even smell more like Jesus, whose birth and life and death and resurrection, in the words of Eugene Peterson, were a miracle that didn't look like a miracle. An ordinary looking miracle in some ways. And along these lines, we've kind of been hunkered down in chapter one, uh, in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We started with kind of Paul's introduction. Uh, the summary would be, hello, I'm Paul. You are saints, and we're all about grace and peace here. And then we looked at the prayer that Paul prayed, the kind of prayer of blessing. And we looked at it in three different weeks, paying close attention to this opening prayer, uh, because it, it is a Trinitarian tour de force. It is this beautiful expression that begins before the foundation of the world and ends with the fullness of time, kind of freely mixing in giant concepts like predestination and glory and heavenly inheritance. And this week, we're gonna move from Paul's 202 word, Greek word, run on sentence of blessing to his follow-up prayer, a mere 169 Greek words without a period in the original manuscript. So he's really cutting it down. Uh, for us, but you can tell he's really exuberant and excited about this, isn't he? And, but before we move into that second prayer from Paul uh, in verses 15 through 23, I'm gonna ask you that you'd pray with me 
and for our time together in God's word this morning. Father, I pray that um, you would do what Paul's asking in this passage. Would you open the eyes of our hearts? We want to see you. Lord, we want to see you as you are, Jesus. With all the gifts that you have brought and are bringing and will bring, we want to see you high and lifted up. We want to behold you in your glory. We want to meet you, whether that's the first time or whether you have to chase us down or whether you, we already have open arms and open hands. Lord, I pray that you would meet us through your word. We plead your promise back to you that you work by your spirit through your words. Lord, we don't want to pretend here. We want you to meet us. And I ask that you would. And we ask that you would in your name, Jesus. Amen. For the last several days, uh, I've been kind of chewing on something about God that I might have dismissed as really basic, even about a week ago. Uh, and certainly, or maybe the very least, would be like sort of a well-worn spiritual spot. Um, and it's this. It's a question that started in our small group, Getting Personal with God. And then a writer named David Benner picked it up. And it has really just stopped me short uh, for the last several days. And it's this question, really. It's more of a thought experiment, and it's this. Imagine God thinking about you. What do you assume God feels when you come to mind? Imagine God thinking about you. What does God feel when you come to mind? Well, what's the answer? Does he feel discouraged when he thinks of you? Angry? even disgusted? Or what about love? Well, here's another way of putting the same question. If God only said one thing to you, what would that phrase be? Would it be stop it? Would it be thanks so much, we really need you? Would it be shape up? Or would it be something like, I like you? In the words of David Benner, your answer to these, qu these questions will tell you a great deal about the nature of your spiritual journey. The answers to these questions are really at the heart of what the Bible calls the gospel or the good news, the central message of Christianity. For instance, when and where you ask these questions shouldn't really matter. Grace is God's unearned favor, right? It abounds all the more than our sins. And so either there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, or there's still very much condemnation for you over certain things and at certain times. Either God is no longer angry at you, or he is still very angry, white hot or cold and bitter. The point is this, I know the answer to these questions. Because of Jesus, God loves me. In the words of Benner again, I love this quote, God the Father's love reflects the Father's character, not the children's behavior. That's so important to hold on to. The, the father's love reflects the father's character, not the children's behavior. His constant and abiding word for me is I like being around you in Christ. But I also have my doubts. There are times and places when I look at myself and I see myself and I hear myself and I think I don't know anymore. 
I start to look for bigger and better and different answers. But it's precisely then that you and I need to return to the basics, to the gospel. And Jesus' words to the Ephesian church, same Ephesian church that Paul's writing to, but this time Jesus is speaking in the book of Revelation. He says, remember the love you had at first. That's how we turn from self-seeking and trust in God again. God with all of his eagerness to love. That's how we know, that's how we do good works to and for others again. We need to remember why we love God and why do we love God? Because God first loved us. And this is what Paul's saying to the same Ephesian church in his letter in verses 15 through 23, right? Paul's praising their faith and he's praising their love, but then he's praying for them to know more of God. Notice Paul isn't suggesting something else or someone else to add on. Paul is telling the Ephesians that he's praying for them to know God and know his benefits more. Benefits like calling and inheritance and power. Benefits that Christ purchased on the cross by his death. And Paul wants the Ephesians to know those more deeply, more fully, to a greater degree. I had a graduate school professor, a seminary professor named Knox Chamblin, and he put it this way. The Lord never allows us to leave the cross or get beyond the cross, but only ever takes us more deeply into the cross. And knowing and experiencing Jesus, this Jesus more deeply in our lives, this is what increases our faith and our love. It gives our lives meaning and purpose. So in a sentence, Ephesians chapter one, verses 15 through 23 are encouraging us in our everyday lives to pray for and live out of more of Jesus and his power. So we're gonna pray for and live out of more of Jesus and his power. And in this passage, Paul's doing, he's telling us how to do this. He's giving us this idea of how to pray and also what to live for. And we see this in three points. And it's our outline for our sermon this morning, which is projected behind me or also in your e-bulletin. First, verses 15 through 17, teach us how to pray. How do we pray? By giving thanks and asking for more. Verses 18 through 19, second point, teach us who, what to want. God's hope, God's riches, and God's power. Third and finally, verses 20 through 23, teach us who to live with. Jesus and his power and the church in its fullness. Sermon outline is really simple. How, what, who? We're gonna look at those, those questions and the verses that accompany them. And we're gonna begin at the beginning with the how, Paul's discussion of prayer. Earlier, I called our passage this morning a prayer, but that's actually not accurate. It's more Paul talking about the prayer he's praying for the Ephesians, okay? On a big picture level, Paul's telling them, showing his original audience that he prays for them, what he prays for them, and more subtly, why he prays for them. So he's saying, this is what I, that I'm praying for you, here's what I'm praying for you, and here's why I'm praying for you. Uh, in this way, Paul's giving the Ephesians and us a model to imitate how and what to pray for, as well as the encouragement about what to do as a congregation when we think about prayer. Uh, and this is on both sides. So many of us 
myself included, sometimes I'll say, I'm going to pray for you. And then we don't. Okay? Or sometimes we do the opposite. We're praying for someone privately. We never tell them that we're praying for them. What does it look like to combine the two things together? What does it look like to say, I'm going to pray for you and then pray for that person and then tell that person, ready, that you're praying for them, what you're praying for, and why you're praying. That'd be so revolutionary. It'd really touch a lot of people who are really struggling in a really deep way if we started to do that as a congregation. And so really Paul, by his example, is also doing something else. He's teaching that we can start our prayers in a way that many of us usually don't with very specific gratitude, with giving thanks to, to God for what he's doing specifically. Perhaps you and I do give thanks, like especially at meals, but we tend to do it sort of in a habit at the beginning of our prayer. It's often not specific. At least for me, it's usually not. My first instinct is not to get to the level of what Paul's doing here, which is he's thinking about the Ephesian church and he's giving thanks for specific things that he has heard about and he has witnessed. A faith in the Lord Jesus, hope toward all the, sorry, love toward all the saints. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, that gratitude is not natural. It's taught and learned. And this is why if you have children, you're always teaching them to say thank you. And you're usually doing it in a way that everyone hears so the thank you doesn't feel as significant. But it's still important to say thank you when, to people. And we have to learn how to do that. And that's why we need Paul's example here of specific and constant thanksgiving because we, we, we need to learn it. It's not natural to us and that's okay. But I also think we need Paul's reminder of gratitude for a bigger reason. We forget in our lives so often that so very many things are given, not earned. So much of our lives is given and not earned. I appreciate the way that the Pulitzer Prize winning author, he's a, he's a wrote the book Overstory, his name is Richard Powers. And he was, in, I listened to a recent interview of him and he's talking about how the culture we live in measures whether it's a good day or a bad day. And so many of us, because we live in this culture, Christian or not, are enthralled. <laughs> we are captivated with being better people, getting ahead, making the most of ourselves, being as productive and efficient as possible. Richard Powers described the way he used to do this as an author. He used to wake up in the morning, and the first thing he did was he felt like he had to write a thousand words he was proud of before he felt free to use his day uh, the way he wanted. We're all card-carrying members of what Richard Powers calls commodity-mediated, individualist, market-driven, human exceptionalism. <laughs> okay, that's a mouthful. Commodity-mediated, individualist, market-driven, human exceptionalism. That is the air we breathe. What does that mean? I think what Powers means by that is that whether it's about friends or children, whether it's about money or success or social status, whether it's just like trying to feel emotionally balanced, we're all obsessed with optimization and life hacks. I think, I, I think in my life, if I can just find a few life improvements, my life will finally work. Yes. And this kind of pressure to have a certain kind of life is driving us into the arms of anxiety. Recently, I was talking to a Christian counselor about all of this, and he said something really profound. He said, gratitude is the great antidote to anxiety. Gratitude is the great antidote 
to anxiety. But why? Look, I'm going to give you every caveat I could think of about biology and families of origin and dynamics, but it's really still important to think that giving thanks begins to take the responsibility off of my shoulders for life in this world. And giving thanks actually puts that responsibility back on God with wonder and with joy. How cool is that? And that is exactly what Paul's doing in these verses, 15 and 16. Because Paul's not just asking and answering the question for himself. He's not just saying, if God said only one thing to me, what would that phrase be? He's asking that, answering that, but he's not just doing that for himself. He's asking us to ask that question in our families and in our churches. If God said only one thing to you, what would that one thing be? And we're to answer that for people. Saints. Right there, verse 15, saints. More on this later. But for now, notice verse 17. Yes, God is responsible. He's at work and our knowing. So we get to pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us and give others the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. That's a lot. <laughs> Giving thanks, let me just kind of break it down. Giving thanks doesn't mean we need to be completely satisfied. Isn't that relieving? You can give thanks and not be completely satisfied. Look what Paul does. He's giving thanks and then he's asking for more immediately. But more of what? He's asking for more of the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him. See, Paul is asking for, and we get to ask for, what we don't have to produce. More knowledge. Yes, look, this is such a deeper way of understanding knowledge than the 21st century American way of understanding knowledge. Yeah, Paul's clearly implying that knowledge is knowledge about, more information, knowledge for college. But it's also primarily more experience-based and personal. Look at the way, what he's praying for. It's a knowledge of him, of God. That's what he's praying for. And that brings us to like the next logical question. What does Paul want us to know more about God? What do we need to know more about him? And this is our second point, And it's really just in verses 18 and 19. Paul's praying for the Ephesians, encouraging us to pray to know more of God's hope, more of God's riches, and more of God's power. And he wants us to experience more of the things because he knows that experiencing more of these personally changes what we want for this life and beyond it. But I think it's first important to name something, to name what Paul's actually asking for and why, because I think we miss this. Look at, look at what Paul's not asking for. Paul is not asking for us to receive more hope more riches, more power. Isn't that interesting? He's not asking for that. He's asking for us to become more aware in our hearts and our heads of what already, we already have in Christ Jesus. Verses 18 through 19, Paul is asking God to enlighten our hearts that we may know the hope and the riches and the immeasurable greatness of his power. And by asking the Spirit's help to enlighten our eyes and to see these gifts, I think this is really important, Paul's acknowledging something that we can all feel. He's acknowledging that hope and riches and power of God, they can feel so often hidden. Can't they? Right? You're here and you're curious about Christianity. 
but maybe you don't feel convinced. Maybe you're, what's unconvincing is that the Christians around you don't seem to have what you don't have already. Certainly not what Jesus has promised in the Bible or what they say Jesus has promised. Or maybe you're that Christian and many days it can feel exactly that way. You don't see or feel Jesus doing much. Where is my undeniable spiritual lift? Where is the reigning riches? Where is the power up? And maybe this makes you feel like you have to pretend. Grit your teeth and try really hard on a Sunday morning or with your friends. Or maybe some days this makes you feel like you just want to quit the whole thing. The church and Christianity. But what if instead of pretending and what if instead of um, quitting it all, what if we prayed, <laughs> what if we prayed for ourselves and for others to see the Christian spiritual situation more clearly? What if what's going on is not a reality and God problem, but an us and perception problem? What if we really are in the dark about all we have in Christ? You know, the furniture of abundant life, to use a metaphor, is all there, but we just can't see the living room set, right? And so we're like, we can only sort of stumble around the darkness and feel the bumps and the bruises and not really know what we're running up against. But Paul's suggesting this kind of really radical thing. He's saying you don't need more furniture. You need a light. You need the light of the world and you need more of him. More Jesus to see the hope, the riches, and the power we already have by our faith and his love. Can I do one more analogy? Let's just do one more analogy. Room of requirements in Harry Potter, right? Think about that. This is exactly how it works, okay? The spiritual life, the dynamics of spiritual life can function like the room of requirement in the Harry Potter series, right? There it is, often hidden from view, but it's also radically available when we ask or seek for more in Christ. And like Harry Potter, though, sometimes it's not the first time or the first few times you ask for it, but over time, what we need appears. And the things we most require in this life, to be clear, are specified in verses 18 through 19. And I'm just going to run through them very briefly. The hope to which God has called you. This is a hope for all the, heat, the, the holiness and freedom and the peace and belonging to God that he started and he is going to finish in his people who have been born again to a living faith in Christ Jesus. And this hope motivates us to a deeper love and a deeper faith. Second, we need to possess the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. We already possess them. And so we, just, we need to realize that we have these future physical and spiritual riches that we're going to enjoy the new heavens and new earth. And this, needs, this means that they're a present tense guaranteed. This is what Paul's saying. They can't be robbed. They can't be spoiled. They can't be canceled. They're meant to be savored. savored. And I love that. Like sometimes we think heavenly minded, no earthly good, but Paul's suggesting the opposite here. He said, fix your eyes on heaven, especially in the moments of suffering. Anticipate greatly Jesus coming again. Think about it. 
And then as we think about these, ra- these riches rest us, they arrest us in the rest of, glo- of more deep faith and love. And then third and perhaps most important, we require and we already have in Christ the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe according to the working of his great might. Jesus by his spirit is at work for us and in us and through us. Jesus is working his great might for us. I get to live out of his love. I don't have to perform for love anymore. Jesus is working, God is working within us. We are becoming more like Christ, dying to sin and living to what is right. And he's also working through us. God is doing his best work in other people through our strengths and also our weaknesses both. Why? Because people feel God's love reflected in us, but they also see the need for God in our failures. And so the working power of God creates in and through us a deeper faith and love. And it's really the nature and the location of God's power that Paul gets preoccupied about in these last few verses, verses 20 through 23, third and final point this morning, who to live with, Jesus and his church. Paul begins by giving public historical proofs of Jesus's power. He's convinced, and it is, it is his desire to convince us of Jesus's ability to perform miracles, miraculous things in and through our lives. And so he turns our attention to Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. Verse 20, the same power that is towards those who believe, the same power, God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That is a mic drop. (laughs) I I mean, we read this and we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a mic drop moment. Jaw should be hitting the floor. My jaw should be hitting the floor. No matter how much we advance technologically, no matter how much we shield ourselves from the daily reality of it, death. We can't avoid death. We're all mortal. Death is bigger than us and we can't control it. We can't even control how and when it happens. Has COVID taught us nothing? But the same spirit inside those who believe in Jesus, that same exact spirit tells us that he took death. The spirit took death all the way to the grave and rose again to live forever. So what does that mean for all of those things in your life that feel bigger than you, that you can't control. Do you know what that means? Jesus is coming for them too. That's the promise. Verses 20 through 22. By the very same power that is towards those who believe God used when he sat Christ at the right hand in the heavenly place, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Second mic drop. This is a big deal what he's just saying. Can you, like, like, no matter how much we advance technologically, no matter how much we try to avoid its reality, we're all fallen from innocence and we can't avoid evil. And what is he saying in this passage? Evil authorities and powers are bigger than us and we can't control them, especially how and when they come into our lives, how they work through us. But the same spirit inside those who believe in Jesus, that same spirit bound Satan, the strong man, crushed evil's head on the cross and all of its powers and names, and they're crunched under his sandaled feet. 
What does that mean for injustice, oppression system-wide and personal? King Jesus has come for them too. And they're under the heel of his slightly lifted sandal and they're squirming with the last twitches of life, but doom's ceiling is pressing oh so low above them. But notice this, where does Paul locate this resurrection and coronation power? Power that stuns and then hogties death and evil. Power in and through us. It funnels, it acts like a funnel and is concentrated in one place, one people. The church. <laughs> Listen to this. God gave him Jesus as the head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Look, if us having the power of Jesus to, and resurrection and, and over death and over evil, coursing through our very souls, if that's like a mic drop moment, saying it's located in the church is like a record scratch, isn't it? <laughs> what? The church? Are you kidding me? Have you looked around, Jesus? Have you looked at the guy up here? What's going on? And here's where I need to be so careful about my tone, because what I'm about to say is what I think Paul is saying, and it's very challenging, very challenging. So hold of all the places God feels like he's not working impulse. <laughs> and I want you to consider the question again, our earlier question, what if it's not a God in reality problem? What if it's an us in perception problem? To re realign our perception with God's reality, let's soak in Paul's two images of the church briefly. First, the church is Jesus's body. There's this intimate connection here. If you separate a head from a body, there's no life, right? They're, they're, they're not able to be separated. And there's also the sense of exclusive mission. Christ the head directs the body, the church, to accomplish Christ's work, all of his transformational efforts on the planet. So look, there's no doubt you can do good outside of the church, but there is some serious doubt that Jesus' good for the planet will happen outside of the church. We need the church. Paul's second image just underlines that point. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus' hope and riches and power and presence infill and then overflow from where? Where's this power located? Not the White House, not the New York Stock Exchange, not Hollywood, not Beijing, not Geneva, not even the Christian publishers, the Christian camps, the Christian coffee shops, the Christian schools, the Christian colleges, the Christian ministries, the Christian movements. Where is Paul saying the, the spiritual power is located? According to these verses, true hope, true riches, true love, these funnel into and flow out from the ecclesia. Literally, the called out ones, the assembled congregation. So you can hear in that word, Ecclesia, the sense that you cannot do Christianity as a solo project. It's impossible. It requires gathering in worship and in relationships around Jesus. And Jesus in his fullness flows into what we're doing right here, right now at this moment and it overflows into life groups 
and Bible studies, coffees and lunches, walks and runs, golf outings and play dates. This is a truth that we as humans are so quick to forget, but especially in the 21st century America, I can't tell you. The Christian brothers and sisters around the globe and in history show us the way here. In countries where Christianity is forbidden and the punishment of being a Christian and gathering as a Christian is death, execution, or life imprisonment, these Christians don't think private prayer and podcasts or following celebrity Christians on Instagram is quite enough. They travel miles to remote secret locations where they post watchmen and, and sneak in one by one into converted tour buses, all in order to attend a weekly church service. Or during the Reformation, historically, they hid communion sets and pulpits in ingenious ways in their private homes risking raids with, with executions and life imprisonments just so they can do what we think is so optional that just takes way too long. The Lord's Supper and the word preached. Why? Because gathered Christians are the roaming hotspot that connects human beings to Jesus' power and presence. And this gets at what a friend of Eugene Peterson's, a man Peterson calls by initials MC, this gets at what he once wrote to a dissatisfied Christian. This is a person who wanted to keep Jesus but quit the church. Listen to what he says, it'll be protected behind me. MC wrote in a letter, I agree. <laughs> it's very hard to participate in church overtime and retain your humanity. You correctly deplore what you criticize. Yet, do you worship with a congregation? Scrub its floors? change its babies, face its critics, humble yourself to its relational intricacies. The Jesus you admire did. He honored and observed worship and community. He lived as a participant. It was not from without, but from within the people of God that he confronted sin. The church is woefully sinful, distorted and inadequate but it's still in the bowels of the church, the worshipers that God has chosen to work, to live, and sometimes to be crucified. It's the church that Jesus says he will build and that all of hell will not prevail against. Do you hear that? What is his argument? What's MC's argument here? Yes, the fullness that fills the church seems like badly behaved, hard to love, unsatisfactory saints. Saints, by the way, like you and me. But oh, how Jesus Christ loved the church. He did the nursery work. He fulfilled the work days. And in the words of Hebrews chapter 12, he was full-throated singing in the congregation assembled on a, sun, on a Saturday at that time and a Sunday now. And Jesus is still in the church as the Holy Spirit, here, there, in the bowels of the church. He's at work, shoulder to shoulder, inside with the best and the worst, the vile and the heroic among us. And do you know what Jesus feels about you or about him or about her or about me who are always on Jesus's mind? Do you know what he feels about them? 
about us? Love. Love. And do you know what one phrase comes to Jesus' mind here in the bowels of the church with us? I like being around you. That's why I'm here. Do you know how I know that? Because I get to hear it in the words we sing and speak. I get to feel it in the faces, albeit half covered by masks, that I get to see every single Sunday. That's how I know that. That's how I can return to the basics and the bowels of the church with Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, help our unbelief. You are working and it is a sight to behold, but we need eyes to see it. We struggle. We are captivated by so many other things than you, Jesus. Open the eyes of our hearts. We want to see you. We want to see you here, now, working. Would you be so good by your grace to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.